0: Welcome to Trail Effect episode 15. I am your host, Josh Blum. Trail Effect is a show that dives into the stories behind trails, the communities that embrace trails, and the people who rely on trails as a way of life. The goal of this show is to turn the stories you will hear from our guests into useful knowledge that can be applied to your community while providing some entertaining and inspirational content. Guests in Trail Effect include trail builders, board members, community leaders, volunteers, and regular people who really enjoy trails. For the first episode of 2021, we bring you Mark Scotch. Mark is a mountain biker's mountain biker. He takes his bike with him everywhere he goes and has ridden more trails than most. Mark is also an ultra-endurance athlete both on the mountain bike and on cross-country skis. Most importantly, Mark is an organ donor. Mark decided that he would donate a kidney to a complete stranger that he had met while traveling. If there is one story to share that can literally save a life, it is this one. Mark will be ramping up his mission to creating awareness around kidney donation in 2021. If there is any way you can help, please reach out to Mark. Support for Trail comes from Smith's Bike Shop in La Crosse, Wisconsin. Smith's is a full-service bike shop that is a retailer for Trek Bicycle Company and Salsa Cycles. Smith's also has a full line of components and accessories from Trigger and other various companies. For more information about Smith's Bike Shop, go to www.smithsbikes.com. A special thanks goes out to Ben Wellenak of Mountain Bike Radio for supporting this podcast and for the people who have shared their time and knowledge. Without this, we would not have these stories to tell. This podcast is an Evolution Trail Services production. For more information about Evolution Trail Services, go to www.evotrails.com. Okay, here we are with Trail Effect and Mark Scotch. Mark has been a mountain biker for quite a while, but started at it probably when he was a middle-aged individual, and he's also an ultra-endurance athlete and uh the most most important part and the reason why we're here today is he's a kidney donor so welcome mark hi uh, josh good to see you good to see you too so let's get let's get your backstory kind of how you got into mountain biking first and then we'll get into the the other parts of this interview but let's kind of build a, a backstory about how you get into mountain biking and then how you get into your um your ultra endurance events
1: okay Um, I actually started um, basically doing something when I was in my early 40s. Before that, my wife and I had three boys. So I did all the father things in my 20s and 30s, Uh, you know, little league coach, basketball coach. My sons are pretty active in a lot of things. My oldest son, especially, was into sports. So we did a lot of, you know, going to watch him play. But then sometime in my early 40s, kids started getting older. They didn't want to be around dad that much. So I started to uh, kind of pay attention to my own health. And I actually started cross-country skiing. And that was the thing I got into first. And I was doing a lot of cross-country skiing. Um, I remember first guy that I met that had never skied the Berkey. It was in Appleton at my brother-in-law's place at a Christmas party when, one year. And I thought to myself, my God, how can somebody ski 30 miles in Berkey? This just, just blew me away. So I slowly progressed and cross-country skiing and then, um, started to do- want to do something in the summertime to, you know, keep my training going. So I got involved in inline skating. And I thought that was the best motion for, uh, I was skate skiing at the time doing a lot of skate skiing mostly, although I did start on traditional, in, uh, you know, traditional, uh, skiing so i did inline skating for about five years five six years i was uh, did the first five uh, duluth inline skating um marathon that was really fun but then it's really tough i did a lot of travel for work and i used to throw my inline skates in there in the summertime and it got to be too many cracked highways too many you know it was kind of hard to inline skate uh skate and my oldest son, Chris, went off to college, and he left his bicycle in, in the garage, his mountain bike. And I don't remember what it was. I'm sure knowing the parent that I was, it was probably a Huffy of some sort. But I, I started started riding his mountain bike, and I was only doing it on, like, cross-country ski trails because I knew the cross-country trail system pretty good all around the, the country. I was uh, traveling for work. I'd be gone. Probably 50% of the time and I, I would be gone Monday through Friday, usually, or Monday, you know, during the week. So I got the mountain bike and was biking, uh, cross country trails. And then, uh, Chris, all of a sudden then, like I said, he ended up playing a little college football and baseball. And I think he had three, um, ACL surgeries in two or two years or something. He was ripping up his knees steady. And they, uh, they got him on, on bikes and he got into mountain biking pretty heavily. He was living in Rhode Island at the time, but when he came back to the Midwest, uh, to Minnesota, he went to college at St. Thomas, he came back to the Midwest and this was about 10, 15 years ago and, uh, 15 years ago, probably. And he was in mountain biking. So we were wanting to spend time together. And so I got into mountain biking. So we started doing the WEMS races. He didn't like the wars. I didn't like the idea of the wars. Too many people, we wanted to do the longer distances, started doing the whims races, like we talked about. I, we did one down south of La Crosse when they were down below there. And, uh, went all the way around Wisconsin. We would, he'd come from Minnesota. I would come from central Wisconsin, Appleton area at the time, or maybe I wasn't Plover then, but. So we started doing mountain biking together and that was really fun. So that's how we, thats how I got into uh, into mountain biking. Um, was was through my oldest son, Chris. Yeah. So with
0: that, you know, you talked about traveling a lot for both cross country skiing and your inline skating. Did that carry over for mountain biking too? And and what types, what places did you get to go to, as far as traveling for mountain biking goes?
1: Yeah, well, I got, I mean, I really was hooked on single track riding. I That was uh, unbelievable. Um, I was listening to, I think it was John and Josh, the two, the truck driver and the policeman. Um, they're talking oh, about.
0: Jonas and, uh, yeah, Jonas and John.
1: Yeah, and I was listening to them and it really, really struck a chord with me because back, you know, 15 years ago, that's what I noticed. It was just single track was such a stress, a stress reducer, man. Once you're on single track, you really had to pay attention. And I, I got hooked on it. So I took my mountain bike. Wherever I went, then when I was traveling, so I was going to paper mills. That's what I did. I worked in the paper industry, so I went all around the Midwest. My territory was, um, you know, the Midwest, and I'd end up. There's a couple of paper mills uh, in the mountain states that nobody wanted, and I volunteered. So I was going to Montana, New Mexico, and Arizona to visit three paper mills about once or twice a year. So. I'd schedule it, make sure I'd hit it when I could mountain bike, and then I usually take a week's vacation while I was out there. So I was going do a ride in Moab in Colorado on my way from Montana to Arizona. So I got to ride all kinds of trails. I mean, and I would even take vacations on my own out there once in a while. My wife would find something to do and I would go take off on my own. So this was all in the you know early two thousands probably. And then we retired three years ago and I just kept it up I just kept mountain biking all the all the places we went up to Alaska I did uh went up in the summertime and I rented a bike and I ended up being on the same trail where uh forgot the kid's name that went up there and lived in the boat and the bus and died up there Chris Candace is that his name they did a movie on him yeah so and then I went up in the wintertime and I I, I was in the ultra marathon ultra. Mar ultra riding by then the arrowhead 135 i was doing that at the time in tuscobia so i went up there in the winter and did uh was called the susitna 100 did that on bike finished fifth i was in fighting for third place for 50 miles with two other i call them kids one was in his late 20s one was in his early 30s and i was in my 50s and it was kind of like that old uh you know butch cassidy sundance kid movie you know they kept looking at me like who is this guy you know (laughs) So I had fun with that. We had a great time. I won a I won a trip through work cuz I sold some equipment and I uh, ended up going to Hawaii one time and I mountain biked uh, Haleakala on Maui from the top of the volcano down to the bottom. Scoped it all out, had my wife set up to pick me up, I figured it'd take a couple hours. When I met when I took off up on the trail I ran into two kind of halfway local guys and they were younger. So I got hooked up with them and we ended up they, they took me on side trails. I think Luckily, I had phone connection because I was able to connect to my wife and we ended up being like four hours late. It took us like six hours to get down the mountain. They took me on all kinds of trails and picking mangoes along the way. And anyway, so yeah, I did a lot of traveling for work and I kind of built my life around mountain biking. And I think I've been, I started kind of tracking it seriously about three years ago. And when I retired and even since my retirement, I think I've been on 180 different trails you know everywhere we go where we travel i take the bike so i've probably been in i biked on trails in probably close to 40 states in my uh in my mount yeah in my mountain biking life and that includes alaska hawaii canada so yeah that's kind of my background i i don't have a favorite trail because i just got so used to riding so many different trails people talk about what their favorite trail is. I don't care. I just don't care. I just ride whatever there is. And I enjoy that because I know next week I might be somewhere else and it'd be totally different. So I don't get hung up on, on what I like the best. I just like to ride. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, and
0: through this travels, that's kind of how we're, that's how you got into the, what we're going to talk about next, which is the kidney transplant. Why don't we talk about um, the backstory on, on becoming a kidney donor and how you just, kind of on a whim but not really on a whim decided to become a kidney donor
1: yeah well about three years ago like I said my wife and I retired um, and we bought a travel trader and so we usually take off after arrowhead I usually do a Tuscobia and uh, do it on bike or do it on uh, skis I don't haven't and then an arrowhead at same thing bike ski and then a couple of years ago I did it on what they call foot but it was a kick sled it's kind of like a dog sled without the dog <laughs> and uh, <laughs> So I did, I did that so I could do it in all three disciplines. And uh, so I usually wait till after the end of January, first part of February to take off on our travel trader. So we were we took off first part of February and I take my uh, mountain bike, usually my full suspension bike. And I have a a hardtail or, or a rigid. If I know I'm going to be by sand, I might take my fat bike and then ride on the beaches and do that, too. So I can just take whatever I want. Anyway, we're heading down, we're going to go to Arizona, but we usually go straight south from Wisconsin. So I took us down into Texas and from Texas, we were rode around there and went down to Bentonville first there to Arkansas, did some riding there, stayed with some friends, rode around there for a few days, went down to Texas for a few days, met up a friend down there too, in San Angelo and then headed, headed west and ended up going, I wanted to go through. I wanted to hit uh, three uh national forests in Texas uh Davy Crockett and there's a couple other ones but that put us going through Louisiana and we ended up in a town called N- uh, Natchitoches. and uh I didn't know anything about this town it just happened to be where they filmed Steel Magnolia's um my wife was didn't, didn't know that either till we got there the so, type of thing and A couple years ago, I got involved with a local uh, farmer in Wisconsin through a mountain bike buddy of mine, Al Potter, and he works in the cranberry industry. and found out that a cranberry farmer not too far from where I live in Plover ended up taking out some cranberries, acreage and put in hops for beer. And he was looking for kind of a part-time salesman. And I came from from the sales background. As you can tell, I don't mind talking. So, (laughs) and, uh. So I was I had hop samples. So we we're always stopping at microbreweries anyway along the way. My wife loves them, and uh, especially she does. She likes dark beers. I like ambers and lighter beers. So we usually end up getting samplers of the whole thing they brew at whatever brewer we go to because we like different beers. So I got to where I would uh, take hop samples for this hop farmer and just talk hops, try to get somebody interested in buying the guy's hops. So we we're in this Natchitoches, Louisiana, at a, at a brewery, um, and uh, talking to the brewer and about hops and we got done talking. He went back to check on his beer and there's a guy sitting a couple of barstools away from me. I think we we're the only two people in the place. It was an afternoon, late in the afternoon, one day. And I started talking to this guy and uh, he's a little bit younger than me in his fifties and, uh, come to find out he, uh, we had a lot of same interests in sports. He was big in the LSU and we were talking politics a little bit, easy to talk to. And, uh, well, then came in a little bit later, and you know, introduced her to this guy named Hughes, Hugh Smith. And he got up after a little bit and said he had to go home. And it was like, "Well, oh, hey, if you want one more? I'll buy, I'll, I'll buy another one, or have, you know, some bottle of water or whatever." You know, no, no, he says, "I gotta go. I really gotta go." And uh, and I was kind of putting the pressure on him a little bit to hang out. And uh, he said, "No, he said, I gotta go. I have to go on dialysis. I have to go home and go on dialysis." And I go, "What? You have to go on dialysis?" He goes, "Yeah." And I says, "I've got." Stage five kidney failure, and I'm on dialysis. I go for this was in March, probably of this year of uh, you know 2020, and then he had gone on dialysis November of 2019, and he had gone in because he was having trouble with um, his heart. He's having like high blood pressure, and he didn't know what was going on. And when they checked him over, um, evidently a kidney failure and high high, uh, high blood pressure kind of can go hand in hand. So he went in for his heart, found out that his kidney function was almost zero. And what had happened was when he was in his twenties, he was, a, a a jockey, he raced horses for a living. So he was, was telling me then he said he would go in, he was a jockey. He'd have five, four or five, six races a day. They don't just race one day, like, you know, one horse, one day, they would ride all day or all weekend. And he was. Part of his thing was, you know, you get, kind of get physically beat up riding those horses. Um, so he's a smaller guy, and uh, he was taking a bunch of ibuprofen because for the pain, and didn't realize, like we know now, but still people aren't totally aware that ibuprofen can do a lot of damage on your kidneys. He ended up wrecking his own kidneys, and it didn't come didn't come in fruition until a few years later. So he's telling me all this and he said, I need a I need a kidney. I'm looking for a kidney. And I said, and I've top of my head, I wasn't thinking about it. I realized now that I maybe I was preparing myself subconsciously for this answer, but I didn't even look at Lynn, I didn't even ask her. I just said, Well, if you need a kidney, I'll I'll I'll, I'll give you one of mine. I just at the top of my head, and he's like looking at me like, What? I said, Yeah, yeah, I'll give you one of mine. I had a sister-in-law that gave a kidney about tw- 10, 13 years ago, and I knew you could give a kidney. I had no idea what I was getting myself into. I really didn't have a clue, but that's where I committed myself to give a kidney. <laughs> yeah, that's that's an interesting, it's definitely an interesting story. Um,
0: now, the way you gave a kidney is a little unique in a way that a lot of people might not know about. Let's talk about how you can donate a kidney that that kidney actually goes to somebody other than Hugh, Hugh. In this example, goes—you know—goes to a, a completely different individual. But then that, you name Hugh as a as a future recipient. That's. Could you explain how that works?
1: Yeah, and I hope I don't get too detailed. But um, when I committed to give a kidney, uh, I assumed, like most people, we had to be a match. So he gave me the name of where he was going to his transplant center, which happened to be in Shreveport, Louisiana. So I called them up and they were like, yeah, if you want to give a kidney to Hugh, you, you got to come down here and be evaluated. And then we check you out, see find out what kind of blood type you are and how your kidney would match up. We try to find if your kidney is going to not be rejected. So it's quite a process. You got to go down there get evaluated and then get surgery. And I was thinking of all this saying, wow, this is pretty involved. I'm going to really, you know, I'll be living down there basically for a while and uh, I wanted to follow through with my commitment. I mean, I, I made the commitment off top of my head, but I also am the type of person that when I usually say something, I usually follow through. So I started to educate myself and slowly, it was just kind of a slow process. And this is why I'm doing what I'm doing. I'm trying to make people aware of, of the whole process to learn what I've learned and what my wife and I have learned. I should say in particular, because she's part of this whole thing, but through my investigations and what I found out was that I could give a kidney to Hugh and name him as the voucher. But um, I also found out that all these transplant centers are kind of independent. I mean, they all might be Ford dealers, but every dealer kind of does his own thing, although they're all selling Fords. that's kind of the best way I can describe it. So I found out that through my research, uh, UW Madison is like one of the best transplant facilities in the whole nation. They're rated very high, and I, in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, well, why would I drive right through Madison to go to Louisiana? I mean, it's like this doesn't make sense. Is there anything I can do up here? So I started asking a lot of questions. I went through Madison's evaluation process, and they asked if I had anybody in mind, and I said, yeah, a guy named Hugh Smith. And they said, well, that's great, you know, and, you know, hope it works out for you. Goodbye. It's like, oh, that seems kind of weird. Well, then I found out that. The transplant facility that he was going to in Shreveport wasn't connected in any way with Madison. And they don't, it's such a, they really want to be precise when they do these transplants. So they are really protective of their donors and protective of their recipients. They don't want you to go to a doctor in the middle of Wisconsin and get checked out. And then that information is transplant, transferred down to Louisiana. The people that are going to do their, the recipient surgery want to know you as a donor, get to know your health, get to know that you're going to be safe afterwards. So they're very protective of of their turf, so to speak. But that's good because I found out that there is a facility through the National Kidney Registry, which I went to and got a lot of information. National Kidney Registry is fantastic. And it's not a government program. It's private, which is a little mis it's kind of hard to understand because you think this would be all government controlled, but it's really not. It is, it it kind of is, but not really. So we, that's details we don't have to get into right now. But National Kidney Registry, the NKR, Madison is registered, and also there's a facility down in Jackson, Alabama, or Jackson, Mississippi. I mean, no, no Jackson, Alabama. I'm sorry. And so I talked to Hugh, and I said, Hugh, would you mind getting registered at Jackson as a recipient? Because if that's the case, then I can use what's called this voucher program. I can have all of, I can schedule my surgery up in Madison, have my donation surgery done there. They will we could have we could have done it to where we could see if Hugh and I were a match. But he had a hard time getting on a Jackson. It took his process took quite a while. So I went ahead and just scheduled my surgery all at Madison. Named Hugh as my voucher recipient. So when I got on, when I got evaluated and got accepted as a donor, they went through all my health and uh, make damn sure that you know I've got two kidneys to start with. That's one thing most people don't realize that. I like, think one out of seven people are born without two kidneys. We don't even know it half the time. That's how. When I heard that, it's like, well, you can get by one kidney. A lot of people out there don't even know they have only one kidney. They're still doing fine. So I got evaluated. Named Hugh as my recipient. So then when I got on the kidney registry, they do an algorithm that goes and runs my kidney and who I am, my kidney type, the antigens, my kidney does to make a perfect, as perfect a fit as it can. They found a person in Manhattan, New York, that was the best fit for my kidney. So my kidney went to Manhattan. So that person, I don't know yet. And maybe I never will know. I'm trying to find out if they're willing to talk to me and I'm willing to talk to them. So by donating one kidney, my kidney saved possibly saved a life in Manhattan. If I didn't save a life, I really altered somebody's life for the positive in a huge way because they're off dialysis now. Um, dialysis, for some people, is a slow march to death. So so for some people, it is a death sentence. But Hugh is also going to get a kidney. So my buddy down in Louisiana is going to get a kidney as well. and he. He was scheduled for December 2nd surgery, but COVID entered into that and caused delays. So he probably won't get his kidney until sometime after the first of of the year. So you don't have to have a direct match. Uh, This is called a voucher system. It's only a couple years old. Um, Some of the benefits of the voucher system, I didn't realize at the time, but I've learned that they help with mileage reimbursement for the donor, like my driving to Madison, it gave a mileage, um, also covered some motel costs. Um, if I was working, they would have a, a, a payroll, payroll supplement to help losing work if you're off work. And one of the cool things, and my wife was with me on all the evaluations and she was part of this journey. And then toward the end of it, she realized that she wanted to see if she could be a donor as well. So she went through the evaluation process she's going to become a living donor as well but for her she's taken the voucher system but she's she's gonna her her vouchers are going to be our our kids and our grandkids so you can do a future donation if you're older we don't have a history of kidney disease in our family but if anybody would get hurt or kidney disease would show up our three grandkids and two of our kids you can have up to five people named on this voucher program for your family so her voucher is going to be for our family, but somebody will immediately get a kidney when she do- when she donates here in the next couple of months. So, if there's anything specifically you want to learn? I'll end it there and and we can we can go on from there. As
0: part of this, you uh, you've also created a a website or a blog, whatever you want to call it in today's world, called the Oregon Trail, correct?
1: Yes, um, I started it on Facebook, but I also decided to do a website as well called the Oregon not the Oregon, but it's the Oregon, <laughs> O-R-G-A-N trail. Um, funny how that name came to be. Uh, I don't know. Some people might remember a magazine called the Dirt Rag. And uh, when I first started mountain biking, I thought that was fantastic. And I got on that. And back in the day, they had a they had a blog where you could get on with people and, oh, they, what did they call it back then? A forum, a forum page. I got to know some of these guys and we got in some pretty good conversations. I'm a I'm a conservative by, you know, my nature. I'm conservative. So I'm getting in all these conversations, with all these young liberals on, on the dirt rag. And they were they were tearing me up pretty good because I was like one of maybe three lib, uh, conservatives that would ever write on there. They were all, they were eating us up left and right. But um, it got too contentious and dirt rag quit doing it. But somebody decided to uh, this, start this new thing called Facebook, you know, and they started a Facebook page and included me in it. I guess they just wanted somebody to agitate. So I'm one of 16, 17 guys that we've been on this uh, this this private Facebook page for like oh, over 10 years, I think. And we just talk bikes. That's what we have in common. We uh, some of them guys come from BMX, and uh, it's a ton of stories from there. But when I decided to do this, I said, "Hey, I need a I need a I need a name for this." this in, this adventure that I'm going to do called kidney awareness and a guy named Kevin Neerman who used to do a lot of artwork for dirt rag and he was on some of their front page. I have one, one of his, uh, or he's an artist by trade, but I wouldn't say by trade. He, he, he does it very good, but he did a lot of cover magazines, uh, a lot of cover art for dirt rag. And I have one of his, uh, originals was when fat bikes first came out. So, um, I've got the Dirt Rag magazine with his artwork, and I've got the original as well on my wall. So Kevin, he's very original, very you know, interesting guy, and he came up with the Oregon Trail, a kidney a kidney donation journey, and uh, so I took that from him, and uh, I use that for my website and my Facebook page. So that's going to have all the information on my ride, and what the story that came to be, and what we're doing. So if you want to learn more about about what I'm doing and about kidney donation, that's the place to go. Well,
0: and your ride technically in one sense already started because you decided that if you're going to give a kidney, you're going to ride from where you live to UW-Madison, correct?
1: Yes. And it's really ties into what you try and talk about on your, on your podcast here with Ben. And, uh, I live in Plover, and I, I, I guess I, for 20 some years, I traveled to all my trails. I just because of work, I was traveling. Well, when I'm home, I don't like to travel. I don't like to throw my bike on the car. So I try to ride from home. So, you know, we're really lucky. And where I live in Plover and Stevens Point, we have what's called the Green Circle Trail, which is about a 30 mile trail around Stevens Point. And we've got various uh, single track trails off of that. A guy named uh, Jesse Lalonde, somebody might know his name, he went to school at Stevens Point. We still have trails out in the woods that kind of he helped design way back when they're all, you know, some of them are kind of only certain people know about them, and uh, so we have to single track off of that, and I could leave from my house and go on the Tomorrow River Trail, which is a straight, a, a, a state trail, a bike bike trail in the summer, and connect with Standing Rocks, which is my local, local uh, mountain bike trail, or I've ridden that all the way out to Hartman Creek, which is in Wapaka, which is their trails there. So I'll get on my bike and turn it into a three, four, five, six, seven, eight-hour ride. Go out, hit the single track, and come back. Luckily, even when I worked, when I didn't, uh, when I wasn't traveling, I worked from home. All this work from home that everybody's getting experience with last year, I've been doing that for 25 years. So when I'm at home, I'm pretty flexible, and I like working at home because when they came up with cell phones way back when, man, I got on that bandwagon really quick. So I could take phone calls and uh, i remember uh, going through pennsylvania way back in the early 2000s and or maybe the late 90s i don't can't remember and i was going to a paper mill in pennsylvania and i took care of a paper mill up in duluth and uh, still there or it was it was kind of closed down the last couple months but i remember they were having trouble with some of the equipment they'd call me because i was starting as a service guy so i did all the troubleshooting of these systems then first thing they'd call me, they wouldn't tell me about their problem. They want to know where I was. It's like, Oh, Mark's in Pennsylvania. You can't believe it. We're calling him on the phone. He's in Pennsylvania driving and we're going to talk to him about fixing our equipment it was such a novelty at the time. But I really got hooked on that working from home thing. Cause I didn't have to be at home. I found out really quick. You don't have to actually be at home. You just got to be able to take a phone call a lot of times. <laughs> so, so yeah. So to get back to the story, um, I, uh, this whole ride thing for the kidney, it really didn't start it at start as an awareness ride. I had no intention of doing that. It was just that my life is wrapped around biking. So, our son, where uh, right now he's in the Air Force. Just uh, where I am right now, I'm visiting him. He's just west of Boston. At the time, he uh, a couple summers ago, he was down in the Pentagon, living in uh, in Arlington, around Al- Alexandria, Virginia, and he was working on the Pentagon. So a couple summers ago. I had my wife drop me off in Pittsburgh, and I rode from Pittsburgh to his house. Down the, it's called the Gap Trail, the Great Appalachian Parkway or Pathway or something. So I did that a couple summers ago, and then I was doing all these endurance rides, and I just like to incorporate my life around biking, and I look for opportunities. So before I realized I could do all my stuff in Madison for the kidney, I thought, well, if I'm going to go down to Louisiana, I'm going to turn this into something fun. So I decided I was going to ride my bike from from our house in Plover to Jackson, Mississippi. That's where I was going to have to go to have my surgery. So I decided to make it fun and ride along the Mississippi River. I was just going to ride and my wife was going to do ground support. and We'd meet up for lunch and for evenings and I was just going to ride my bike there. And it evolved into Doing it to create awareness, and then and then it worked into where I'd have my surgery first in Madison and do it on do it on one kidney to prove that you could you could give a kidney, be out of commission for a couple months, probably at the most, and uh, get back to right get back to what you were doing as a, as a bike rider or any kind of uh, athlete, so to speak. So did a lot of research. When I decided to do this, I wrote to this NKR. I contacted National Kidney Registry and told them what I wanted to do, and asked them if they wanted to help me create awareness. And they got me in touch with a guy named Ned Brooks. And Ned Brooks, uh, at the time, had a was a, actually had donated a kidney himself. He's an older guy like myself, and he's he started like five years ago. He started a website called Donor to Donor. He's since called and name changed it to National Kidney Donation Organization. And I talked to him and he's the one who suggested the voucher. He's the one that suggested I go to Madison. He gave me all the kind of tips on how to, how to make this work. And then I told him about my plan to create awareness by riding bike. And he, he's, he's on board. His website's going to help me create awareness. And um, um, I also then, about the same time, we decided to tell our kids, my th- our three boys about my kidney donation. So we got him on the phone and, Pretty funny, you know, story how that goes. But my oldest son, who was involved in endurance racing himself, him and his wife, Helen, are, are the race directors for the Tuscobia. And he's done Arrowhead a lot of times. And so is she, by the way. And uh, he's like, in the back of my mind, I didn't know if I could really go back to this stuff. I really didn't know what was going to happen once I gave a kidney. And so he asked me the question. and He goes, so are you done, like, with endurance racing then? And I said, I don't know. I really don't know. So that prompted me to start asking questions, and that got me to a a woman named uh, Tracy Hulick, who happened to be from the Madison area, and she gave a kidney. And she was having the same issues two years ago. Um, She was doing marathons and wanted to do longer running races. So she was uh, motivated or inspired to create an awareness uh, site called Kidney Donor Athletes. She's been collecting stories of all different people around the country that have given a kidney through living donor or a match donor and uh, recover and go back to their whatever their activity might be. There's uh, iron men, there's bikers, there's runners, there's uh, weightlifters, there's just any kind of thing you can think of of stories of people. And she's got my profile in there as well. And uh, so she really helped me a lot, as well did Ned. And uh, one thing led to another, and that's where the whole ride came from then. So originally it was just going to be a ride by myself, and then I turned it into this awareness ride. Um, When I found out that 13 people die every day because of lack of transplants, I just wanted to try and spread the word to a community that I think um, is really healthy, which they look for healthy people. People that are, um, you know, especially in the, the endurance communities and the mountain biking community, is just, people are so good. I mean, they're just great. They'll help you out and do anything. And I, I just thought this might ring some bells of people that want to to join in this endeavor that I found is, to be really exciting as far as trying to help other people.
0: Yeah, so you did ride from Plover to Madison. And then, oh that's yeah, the that's English
1: where that's, that's where this started. I kind of forgot about that. <laughs> yeah, so I wanted to follow. I wanted to ride from my home. That's where this all started. So yeah, and I had I had the river theme with the Mississippi. So it's like, okay, we're gonna ride from Plover to my home to to Madison through the surgery. So I had to do that beforehand. So I set up my surgery, which was September thirtieth, and I was gonna, which was like a Wednesday. And I was going to ride down that weekend, 150 miles, if you follow the Wisconsin River. It's going to take two days. And I invited all my mountain bike buddies or whoever wants to ride to me. My grandkids rode. Everybody rode. Everybody. Some people rode a block. Some people rode a mile. Some people rode 30 miles. Some people did the whole thing with me. But the, <laughs> the doctor said, no, if you're going to do that, we're not going to do surgery on Wednesday because you're going to be in the, you can be dehydrated. We're not going to take a kidney out of you that's, you know, that's stressed out and put it into somebody else. So I had to schedule it for a week before. So it was 10 days before surgery or so. Yeah. So that's what happened. I started from plover, And uh, so part of that journey done already. You can read about it on my website. Got some pictures in there. We had a really good time. And, uh, and the whole thing was, hey, people ride with me. We can talk about kidneys. We can talk about anything. You know, we talked about the election. You know, and we, you know, we just talk about everything while we're riding. So that's part of the fun. I wanted to incorporate the fun of riding with with this whole kidney thing and have have fun with it. So I did the first part already, and the second part is going to leave from Madison. That's where I had my surgery at the UW Hospital on April twenty fourth, and I've already got it set up to where that's when I'm going to leave, and uh, people can all across the state can come down and ride with me if they want and help try to get uh, exposure. So we're get TV, radio. Uh, We already had the TV stations in Madison um, uh, interview us as we came into Madison last uh, September. We'll get them online when we leave in April and do the same thing again. We're just going to have If I could get a critical mass, I mean, if I could get a ton of people, this would be awesome to just have, I mean, gobs. I mean, hopefully COVID is to the point where people feel like they want to come out, do this kind of thing. But even if it is, we're going to start at a big parking lot so we can keep distance away from us. You know, in between the riders, so we're gonna just ride down. We're gonna ride a certain path out of Madison and I'm gonna invite again open it up to anybody that wants to ride. We'll keep the pace slow. Kids, I don't I mean kids are important. My uh, my eleven year old grandson is in fifth grade and he was telling his teacher about this and then she she actually played the video from one of the T V stations. And it's really funny because Tracy Hulico, I mentioned earlier she knew she was going to donate a kidney from seventh grade. I think she heard one of her friends talk about her uncle gave a kidney. She decided in seventh grade she was going to give a kidney, and it took her till she was in her 30s, but she ended up doing it. So I I want to plant those seeds with well y- young people and older people too that feel like they they want to give something back. This is a great way to like my wife's doing, give the voucher to her to our family and still give a save a life today, so to speak. I got. Two, two
0: places I want to go from that. One is, is there a certain age that is kind of the prime time for donation? And then we'll go on to the second topic after that.
1: Yeah. And I'm not an expert in this. So I encourage people to, I don't want to be an expert. I just learned from sales that you don't want to, I don't need to know everything. I just need to tell you where to, where to find information and let people buy. I'm not trying to sell. I'm trying to let people buy. And I want people to feel like they want to do this. So the age thing, I found out that they don't want to do it too early because if kidney disease does show up, it shows up in the early years of people's lives, and I'm just going to say 20s and 30s, for example. So they're very cautious with the younger people. Depends on the situation. I mean, if you have a wife or a or a kid, your own child maybe that needs a kidney, you know, they might, you know, there's options available where people can do that at earlier, earlier uh, you know parts in her life. But when I started donating, I was like 64 when I started to process and I had read or oh, their 60s is a cutoff. Well then I called Madison and it's like, well, no, we found out in the last few years that people have very good health it's in their 60s. So there's people that are in their 70s that actually have donated. I've got a story of a 17 a 72 year old on my on my website at that game. So the age is really not as big a factor as your 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 health. And the evaluation is very, very rigorous. They've actually, people have offered to donate, gone in for an evaluation and feeling 100%. And they've actually found cancer or something and it's such early stages with these people, heart issues that that it actually saved their own life by going in and get evaluated. They couldn't become donors, but again, it helped them personally. So
0: then, the second place I'd like to, to go is, I think to kind of ease some people's minds of, of what the process is like to donate a kidney. Um, how was how's your recovery been? You, you know you, you donated back in September, and we're now at the end of you know we're we're recording this on December twenty seventh of twenty twenty to put that into perspective. Um, how was the recovery? Obviously, you're traveling. You're you're still riding your bike. Your lifestyle doesn't appear to have changed much, which is great.
1: Yeah. So. You know, you got to be careful because this is only one story, okay? Um, this is just, just me. Yep. And I was 64. I was in good health. I mean, I am I'm. I'm uh, <laughs> I did the Berkey, I don't know, 12 times, I think. And I remember in the beginning, I used to wear the heart rate monitor when I trained when I did the Berkey. And I, I'd finished the Berkey in a little over three hours. I was a Wave 3 Berkey skier, which is pretty good. I mean, I had taught myself how to ski. I didn't take ever take lessons. But... Whenever I finished the race, I'd look down at my watch, and it'd be flashing obese because I'm, I'd be I'm I'm overweight for my for my height and everything. Um, it's muscle, you know. It's all muscle, you know. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But anyway, but anyway, just to give the just to give the listeners, I'm not I'm not you know a six foot five you know hundred and sixty pound guy. So borderline. Uh, I've been fighting cholesterol. I'm I'm not on any medication, but I'm borderline. But I'm not real, to me, the keyword is balance in my life. I like to have fun. I like to have a beer. I like to, you know, eat certain foods, but I also like to ride bike a long distance and ski a long distance. So I guess, you know, for me personally, I think I was in pretty good health going in, except for a little bit borderline cholesterol. And so, um, you know, um, if you can do the Arrowhead 135, if you can do Tuscobia, That was last year I did to I skied 160 miles. I hadn't been on skis for two years, (laughs) but (laughs) yeah, it sounds crazy. Skied 160 miles halfway through. It was rain. I mean, I was, it was unbelievable conditions, but you know, a few years ago I was skiing, I was mountain biking up in Wausau and I went off a, a drop and ended up, it wasn't a drop. It was a gap and I didn't know it. I didn't scout out. Didn't scout out real well. <laughs> and I uh, ended up uh, trying to get across this gap. At the last second, I saw it was a gap. So I gave a real hard pedal to try and get some speed. Ended up landing in a tree. From what I remember, I blacked out for a few seconds. Ended up broken my collarbone, broke my collarbone, broke five ribs, punctured a lung, bruised a lung. Oh, wow. Yeah. So I was in pretty rough shape. Um, after nine days, my grandson was there, he was six at the time, and I'd been biking with him, he started uh, kick biking at age two, I got him on a kick bike at age two. So he's been biking with me ever since he could walk almost. And uh, after nine days after my crash, he was over by us. he wanted to go for a bike ride. So he got me back on the bike, which was really, you know, doctors would not recommend that. So I was, I was recovering by that fall. I was I I, uh, I did the Arrowhead and Tuscobia again. Um, last a year ago, last year, I did uh, I did the 160 miles without skiing because that summer, I broke my collarbone skiing and I had signed up for the Berkey already. But I was afraid to train um, with skis because I was worried about my arm, my arm, the clavicle. I didn't want to overdo that. So I ended up um, doing the Berkey. A buddy of mine that I got to know through work um, lives in Appleton and he he flies the Berkey has his own plane. So he'd always... Last few years of my Berkey career, he'd stop at Stevens Point, jump in his airplane, throw my skis in. We'd fly up to Cable and uh, get our bag, ski the Berkey, you know, have a beer or two on Main Street with the guys and then get on the bus, get back to Cable, get back in the airplane. I'd be back in my hot tub in Plover at 7 o'clock at night. So I thought, yeah, I I so that year I hadn't trained for the Berkey. I was signed up and Doug, you know, the invitation was still open, so I wanted—I was going to fly up with them and get my stuff and just do some skiing around. It's not going to bother with the race. So I hadn't trained, but I had done Arrowhead in Tuscovia that year on bike. And I had read way back and when in the Silent Sports magazine, you know, that would be you could still get. And uh, Lee Borowski was the cross-country ski guy, and he always – I remember way back in the 90s, I think it was, he said that the best off-season training for cross-country skiing at the time was mountain biking. If you stand up a lot, said you got to stand up a lot because when you stand up, you, it's amazing how much you use your upper body when you mountain bike on single track. People don't realize it, like, how much you really do your use your upper body. So just by mountain biking, I was in good enough shake. I did the Berkey for two years without being on skis once, just doing my single track riding on my mountain bike and fat biking in the winter. And my times really didn't reflect much difference. I mean, my times weren't any different, really. So, so my health, when I got surgery was, uh, I had skied uh, to Toscopia and been on skis for two years, but I had done a lot of biking. So my health was pretty good going into surgery and I had the surgery, no complications. The surgery is four hours long. And a lot of it was what they've learned in the last couple years. And that's one of the reasons why I want to do this whole thing with the kid, because they've learned so much in the last, even two to five years. They've learned so much to help to help with the transplants. They found out for the living donors, they really, really uh, want to get them back on their feet. So four hour, surgery is four hours. The first two hours, all they do is, is work on moving your organs, your intestines, because they have to go. They go through the front. It's laparoscopic. They go through the front. And your kidneys are in your back, basically. But they can't go through the back because your spine is there, I guess. So they prefer to go through the front. So, they move everything away, get everything out of the way, clear path to the kidney, take the kidney, get it out. They make about a, I don't know, four or five inch incision at your belt buckle. Best thing I can describe is like a pooper scooper for a dog. They run this thing in with a little basket and they snip the kidney off. It falls into this basket. Then they pull it out through your navel. It's a little incision. So, and then they put everything back real gently. They just, everything is really slow and gentle. And they found out that. The gentler they can handle the donor, the better the recovery is because their body isn't disrupted. So, my surgeon is top notch. Uh, He wrote a book. This came out a couple years ago called When Death Becomes Life. And I'll plug his book for him because he's, you know, he wrote the book on it, so to speak. (laughs) He gets into the history of transplants. It's really informative. He was my actual surgeon. Uh, Got to know him. I. Had surgery at 6.30 in the morning so they could get my kidney to Manhattan um, as soon as they could because there was somebody there that was being operated on to receive my kidney. So by 5 o'clock that afternoon, I was already up. They had me up walking. By 8 o'clock, I was, you know, walking on my own. There's a couple of videos on my Facebook page that has me walking around. I left the next day because um, i fulfilled the requirements was just basically be able to go to the bathroom basically you know be able to urinate they didn't even care if i had a ball movement because they you know they figure you're healthy going in so they don't make a big deal about that for living donors i kind of was getting off the painkillers a little early i do admit that I've, I've always been able to handle a lot of pain um so i didn't was kind of skimping on the painkillers but the ride home from madison to plover which is 90 miles only but that took a lot more out of me than I suspected it would, just sitting there. And I wouldn't say bouncing around, but you know, you're know, you in a car. And I woke up the next morning in a lot of pain. And um, I started to get back on the painkillers they gave me, full full throttle. Um, my biggest pain was not my stomach, it was my back. When they do surgery, they they insert a gas into your stomach cavity and they blow it up. And that gives them room to work on things where so everything's blowing up and they try to suck all that gas out, but they don't get it all. And this is common for any kind of surgery in the abdomen area. That gas causes, and there's a reason why, but I can't remember, a gas problems, gas causes problems in your back and your shoulder. And I had more problems with my back and my shoulder. My stomach never bothered me once. It was my back and my shoulder. And I found out that I couldn't lift my left leg. When um, they go into the left side, they prefer the left kidney, so they can do a little, when they're doing things in there, a nerve can be damaged. I wouldn't say damaged, affected, and it happened to be my left leg. I, had a, I couldn't lift my left leg without pain, so when I tried to put on my pants or my pajamas or even underwear, I couldn't lift my leg very well. That took about a week, actually, to where that was gone. My pain in my back took about five days. But I was up walking around doing a lot of things. They have you on a ten-pound weight limit, so they don't want you lifting anything and risk a hernia, because that one incision they make on your stomach, they don't even cut the muscle. They cut the skin. They slowly separate the muscle enough to get the kidney out, and then they put the muscle back. They don't even do the muscle cut. They don't want to. They don't even do that. Um, so that, again, that that creates a a, a better recovery a quicker recovery but like my doctor explained to me no matter how good you feel you still run the risk your body still has to take x amount of time to heal from the laparoscopic cuts and the actual cut in the stomach so he really highly suggested even though i felt great i didn't have any issues to stay on that uh i went in two weeks for my two-week checkup and he was telling me all this because i said hey can i get back on my bike after two weeks and he said no Don't do it. He said, You risk, you're going to risk doing something that would set you back. And at the time, Sescovia was still on, and so was Arrowhead. So I planned on doing both Sescovia in December and Arrowhead in January on one kidney. That was going to be a big, big thing, you know, uh, be able to go back, you know. Well, they both got canceled, but I got on bike, and uh, uh, I'm not going to say when, but it was early. (laughs) Uh, Because I don't want to everybody's got to judge, make their own judgment, make make their own call. But uh, my wife has an exercise bike that broke down and I was working on that and I had to set it up for her. And I found myself on her exercise bike trying to set the seat because she's about to shes a little shorter than I am. But I ended up on her exercise bike, pedaling this exercise bike without even thinking about it, trying to get it set up. And it's like, (laughs) I'm doing this. Well, so I kind of like, well, okay. I kind of felt okay. So I snuck out. My wife wouldn't let me. I had to sneak out and go tell her I was going to go for a walk because <laughs> they encourage a lot of walking, but walk as much as you want. I was doing two, three hour walks. Basically a couple of weeks after my surgery, I was out walking early and I snuck my bike out and uh, did it very light biking. I didn't do very light pedaling. I didn't do anything major. And I just, I went around the block, felt good. The next day I went out for a half hour ride and it about killed me. I was so tired. They told me the biggest thing people find for donors. Recipients are totally different because they're getting the kidney in. But the donors is fatigue. And I could not believe it. I went out and for 15 minutes I rode down the bike path and I had to turn around. I could barely pedal. I was so fatigued. And I was unbelievably hungry, unbelievably hungry. My body just, that little bit of exercise just seemed to just suck everything out of me. So it I went for 30 minutes that first day, and I couldn't believe how fatigued I was. And I had read stories about people going out and feeling great, and then they hit a wall and they can't get back. They have to call somebody to pick them up. I didn't want that to happen because my wife probably would have said, You're on your own, buddy. You're an idiot. You stay out there. (laughs) So anyway, I got back after a half hour. I took the next day off. I just walked. Then the third day, I went out for a little bit longer, and I still hit that fatigue. And uh, it took about four or five rides. It took another week, probably, to where I could go out and feel like I could actually ride somewhat normal. But I got surgery on September 30th, so that my eight to 10 week, or eight to six to eight, 10 weeks wrapped into hunting season. So I went up deer hunting season. I have a hunting shack and I carried a gun, which is probably, you know, the weight limit thing. But, uh, after hunting season, then I did a lot of walking during hunting season. Um, just walking, general walking. I came back from hunting season. That was my, my two weeks, my two months were up. So I got back on the bike and I've been biking. I lost some fitness, obviously. Um, and I'm still careful. I stayed off single track. I stayed off, you know, anything that's going to have a hard climb or I have to really use my upper body and kind of use my core. I just did leg pedaling on flat ground, got to feel real comfortable with that. I got up to two, three hour rides, um, feeling good. And, um, here it is the end of December and I'm doing everything. I mean, I'm I'm going out for three hour rides in the sand. I'm putting my bike, my fat bike down to two, three pounds of air pressure. We're down in, on the Atlantic coast right now, staying very far away from people. But uh, my wife's surgery got canceled, so she can't do anything until February. So we decided to, uh, to take off from Wisconsin and we're down on the Atlantic Ocean, a couple different condos that we uh, kind of a timeshare thing. So I've been riding every day on the sand on my fat bike and riding. You know, two three hours. You know, I'm not going 100. percent I'm doing 80 to 90 though. I'm just having fun. You know, just not killing myself. Yeah, uh, basically, I didn't have any recovery issues at all, not one, and except for a little bit of pain in my back. Um, and that's not totally unusual, but I, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna say this is for everybody. You know, somebody might run into some issues, but for me, it, it's been like really nothing, to be honest. That sounds, that's, that's awesome.
0: So I think we've covered just about everything we had for topics.
1: Do you have anything you'd like to close with before we uh, wrap this one up? Um, you know, I just, in general, just my wife and I are just trying to get word out that I didn't realize it. I'm sure a lot of people don't realize it, that, uh, this kidney transplant thing is really bizarre because like I said, 13 people die every day because of lack of transplants and a lot of people can live with one kidney. I mean, most of us can live with one kidney and there's a TV show that just kind of came out this year on CBS called be positive. And it talks about a kidney donor and a kidney transplant victim. And you can re- watch some TV on it even, but I only watched one issue once one, one, uh show. I don't know how realistic it is, but, um, I guess what I'm trying to say is that more and more word is getting out that, and a lot of it's because they've made so many advances then in, in the uh, on on the medical side. You don't have to be a match. Uh, you don't have to, you know, spend. You don't have to travel somewhere to be somewhere to to donate a kidney. You can do it locally, and still have a huge effect. So I'm just trying to. My wife and I are both just trying to make people aware to to look into it. I mean. Not everybody can be a donor, a living donor. Uh, you know, most of us are are got that orange dot on our driver's license. We're we're willing to be deceased donors, but I found out that only I think three out of a thousand people die in such a way that those organs can be used. I didn't realize it was that low. I mean, I thought that I didn't think there was any need for for organs, to be honest with you. I thought that everybody that needed one was getting one. That's not the case. So, living donors. I guess what I'm trying to say is that I'm trying to get three three messages across. Basically, one is just learn about it, and even if you don't do anything more than just learn about it, and in conversation, you can help maybe somebody with a with a fact that you don't have to match. That you, there's no age limit. That you don't have to go somewhere. You can do it locally. So. If people just take the time to just on an afternoon they're curious, just learn about kidney donation. And I've included some some links on my pages that you can go get some just general information. Two, if it strikes you that you uh well, you know, and check and see if you're a deceased donor. I mean, if you're not a deceased donor, at least do that. Um, I think that's that's the least we could do as a as a human, I think, is somebody who can use our body once we're gone. And then the third thing is consider living donation. I mean, think about it for your own life, if you will. And you don't have – I mean, one thing I learned about sales, I never got upset if I didn't get a sale at the time because if the people aren't ready at the time, you have to sell something tomorrow or next week or next month. And Tracy Hulick, the gal that started uh, living kidney or kidney donor athletes, she made this decision as a seventh grader, I think, to become a living donor, and she didn't do it until she was in her late 30s. So you know, if you just learn about it, maybe somebody's story will strike you in a certain way. Maybe someday you'll decide to become a living donor when time is right. I mean, I don't think I would have ever considered it if I was still working. But once I retired, um, it became just something that that struck me at the time in my life when it all made sense. So um, I guess that's really all I want to add is just look into it and if you're in Wisconsin, or if you're on, if you live anywhere near the Mississippi River next spring, I'd love to have anybody or anybody that wants to ride with me. Even if you don't have any I desire to be involved in the kidney donation thing at all, just come out and ride and help me create awareness by getting as much possible, as many people as possible to ride to get the to get the media to take it to get attention and and to help spread the word that there is a need. If one out of 10,000 people would become a living donor, 13 people a day would not be dying. We would wipe that out in one at one at one time. Of course, you have to do it every year because I think every 10 minutes or so somebody goes on the kidney donation list. There's a hundred thousand people right now waiting for a kidney in the United States and there's 30,000 or so surgeries transplants done. So we're losing 60,000 people, basically, uh, to to this. And, you know, we all make donations in some way. We donate our time. We donate our our treasure. I just looked at this as the bang for the buck. I mean, considering what it took for me to donate in my recovery, and the fact that if, if I do need a kidney because I registered and donated to the National Kidney Registry, I will get a kidney. If I need one, even though I only have one right now, the bang for the buck at the, you know, for this, is just, um, it's the most I could ever think of to do for something for somebody and have the least amount of effect on me, <laughs> so to speak. I mean, it's just, I, and I, and I'm getting some great bike rides out of it. Once I, once we do the Mississippi river ride, I'm going to turn around next fall and I'm going to ride from Plover to Manhattan because that's where my kidney went and I'm going to do the same thing going toward the East Coast. Uh, I got a route, but depending on COVID or not, if I can get up through Canada, because I plan on going from, Plo- from Plover up to Sault Ste. Marie and go to Canada for a little while, and then pop on down and do some ferry riding on some islands in Lake uh, Lake Huron, end up in Niagara Falls, and then following the Canal River, can- uh, the Erie Canal. now was a bike trail from Niagara Falls to Albany. Then from Albany is a is a shot down to New York City. So that's what I'm going to do in the fall. I'm going to do the same exact thing and try and create awareness. I got a bunch of people that I know from Pennsylvania that have ridden with me. Dirt rag. We had a dirt rag uh, ride one year, 10 years ago or so. And I ended up riding with some friends from in Pennsylvania for that. So to answer your question, I guess I am just encourage everybody to try to, that's, that here's this, just try to learn a little bit about it is what I'm asking.
0: Yeah, well, that's, I mean, that's awesome. And we'll get, just in case people are wondering, all the links that Mark has talked about here as far as website links and everything, we'll put those in the show notes. So, you know, they'll they'll be easily accessible. Um, I encourage anybody who wants to join Mark with his ride, whether it's, you know, here or Louisiana or anywhere in between here and Louisiana. And when I, and when I say here, I should preface that with Wisconsin. Anyone between <laughs> Madison, Wisconsin and Louisiana that wants to, you know, wants to hop hop on and join Mark, even if it's for a block, you know, to, to join Mark and his ride next spring, starting on April 24th?
1: Yep, April 24th. And I've got the route already uh, on my website. You go to events, and I, I, uh, I just separated by what Google allowed me to do with maps. It's not a day-to-day thing. It's going to be very, very fluid. Um, I do know that we're leaving on the 24th, and I hope to get to Dubuque, which is 100 miles the first day. I may or may not even do that, but it's going to be very day-to-day. We're also going to be asking the mountain bike community and the transplant community um, for lodging um, along the route. I'm going to be talking to a couple national organizations, and we're going to specifically start talking to state organizations. So along the route, um, instead of trying to get motel rooms all, you know, all along the route, we're going to be asking for people that be willing to help with, with lodging for Lynn and I. And again, it's going to be COVID restricted. Maybe we'll see how it goes. Originally, this whole ride was going to happen this last fall, but because of delays in the transplant, I had to wait till the spring. Which maybe was a huge blessing in disguise with the with the vaccine coming. So, um, you know, I'm not gonna. I've done a lot of bikepacking in my time. I spent a lot of time in sleeping bags uh, for ten years in a row. My brother in law and I went up to Canada, canoeing and kayaking for weeks at a time up there, a week or two, 10 days at a time up there. I've done a lot of dirt, dirt camping and dirt sleeping. I don't want to do it on this trip. <laughs> so we're gonna be uh, we're gonna be looking for a bed. So if anybody is willing to help us out in that regard, either putting us up or spreading the word, all that's gonna be available on the website and Facebook page. We're gonna we're I'm not I'm not doing anything right now with it. I'm gonna wait till after the first of the of the year to start scheduling this a little bit more. But we're just going to open it up to the goodwill of the community, so to speak, and see what happens. And hopefully it's, uh, the spontaneous, spont- spont- spontaneity of it is going to be part of the fun for me. I, uh, I got so used to riding trails that are new to me when I, if I ride twice on the same trail, I, got, I got to get bored pretty quick now. So, uh, same thing with this whole ride. I think that's part of the fun is just, uh, kind of seeing what's out there tomorrow, so to speak.
0: Yeah. Well, it all started with a spontaneous donation.
1: Yeah. True. True enough. I guess. Uh, I know my oldest son, Chris, he, he knows that, you know, whether it's canoeing or kayaking or biking or skiing, I kind of move into something and then I wouldn't say I conquer it by any means, but after a while I started looking at something else. And, and, uh, you know, one thing that's really held my interest. though has been mountain biking. I think because of the, because they're on a different trail. Uh, That's one thing that never really interested me about biking was like road biking, because it's like, uh, it's not as mind capturing as single track. And so I always, single track is always my ace in the hole. And so I think everybody listening to this will agree, will understand that. But, um, and we're going to be doing, I'm not, you know, I'm not, I'm not opposed to somebody along my route saying, Hey, Mark, we got some single track come on over here I'll take a day off and do some single track riding with anybody along the way or half a day. Doesn't, I, I'll veer off that trail. So anybody, Hey, you know, challenge me. Let's go do some single track riding. Come on.
0: <laughs> yeah. Make it an adventure.
1: Yep. Exactly.
0: So awesome. Well, thank you very much, Mark. We're going to wrap this thing up.
1: Well, uh, thanks to you and Ben, Josh, for the opportunity to come out and spread the word and let me rattle on, um, with this. I've got my email address and phone numbers available if anybody has any questions that want to talk to me privately. This is very serious. I mean, I'm having fun with it and I'm a little cavalier about it, but to be totally honest, it's very serious. Very serious.
0: Yeah. Well, thank you again for your time, and, and this was great. Thanks. Thank you for listening to the Mark Scotch interview. I hope you have gained some insight around kidney donation. If you have any ideas or platforms to help share the kidney donation story and Mark's story of the Oregon Trail, please reach out to Mark. His contact information can be found in the show notes. Please share this podcast with others. Getting this message out may literally help save a life. Please remember to leave a comment and rate the show wherever you consume your podcasts. This podcast has been made possible by Mountain Bike Radio, Smith's Bike Shop in La Crosse, Wisconsin, and is an Evolution Trail Services production. If you have ideas on future communities or people to feature on Trail Effect, please don't hesitate to reach out by emailing evolutiontrails at gmail.com. Thank you again for listening.